Hey, music lovers, the Cannamom Show podcast in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at lampkinguitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N-Guitars.com If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. And today, we have a special guest with us, the documentary filmmaker, director, and producer of hits like Smoking Weed with Bigfoot (laughs) and others, Mr. Jeremy Nori. Welcome to the show, man. (laughs) Yes, thank you. So, yeah, it's I'm, I'm going to get into the films and all that stuff, but I, I'm, I'm curious about you and sort of your trajectory and your history. Uh, where where were you born? What's your where would you grow up? Sure. Yeah, no problem. So uh, my dad is from Scotland. OK, so that's one of the more interesting parts of my my upbringing, because it's a little different than the normal American upbringing because, because of that. But have you, uh, been, I, have you been to Scotland? I have when I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a very different place, but uh, you know, that's kind of true for everywhere. I was born in California in Hollywood and I grew up in the San Fernando Valley and uh, Catholic school uh, that whole kind of conservative lifestyle. And then when I was, you know, um, say a teenager, like basically going into high school, uh, things started to change for me. A lot of my interests became kind of more um, obscure. And uh, uh, I, I got into a much more of a... a outlaw lifestyle in my later years. So let's back up uh, before you got into your outlaw. Uh, <laughs> so you grew up in the Valley. I, I live in the Valley. I live in Studio City. Uh, so I'm, sure. I'm, I'm from Philly though, but I, so I, I don't know about this whole thing with uh, people in LA or, you know, the Valley. Oh, it's, it's the Valley of West side. So I, I don't know that whole rivalry right. thing, but it, I mean, you probably experience that, you know, like there's the West side people, you don't go here and it's the yeah. Valley people, they don't go there kind of thing. It's uh, but like growing up, so you went to Catholic school and did you go to Catholic school like throughout your high school years as well? Yep. So I went to Notre Dame, very close okay. to you. Yeah. I'm very, very familiar with it. Um, so 
in terms of like your life experiences, what what happened to sh- shape those? Uh, would, did you have like s- certain interests uh, in in science fiction and in certain things did that that help kind of mold your your personality and sort of what you started to show interest in later on in life? Yeah, definitely. As a kid, I was one of the nerdy kids, right? So, uh, and this kind of goes also along with my dad being from Scotland. I played soccer, which is the nerdy sport. That's well, at least back then it was not cool. It was uh, not I played baseball. soccer, so I don't know, man. <laughs> you know, <laughs> football players were doing great. Not so much for us. And uh, that led me to uh, like kind of eventually identifying with uh, being different and not going with the crowd. And, because I saw the value in some of these things that, that weren't popular in the mainstream. And I, I love them. And they were really wonderful for me. So it opened my eyes to, to being more open-minded. And that, you know, even, even just as a kid, what I gravitated towards was kind of, you know, dorky, not, not, not really celebrated stuff. I liked, you know, He-Man and I liked uh, Star, well, Star Wars has done well for itself, but, you know, those kind of things weren't they were not what they are today you know like back then you know you're kind of a geek you're kind of like in at my school there was like three or four of us and and we were we all knew that we were our own thing i i remember i was playing like japanese animation uh cartoons at at recess with me and my like five friends and and uh the uh all the rest of the class were like playing basketball and doing a sport and, or the girls were like playing jump rope and doing something totally different. and he, we were running around on our own page entirely but so i mean like was there music that you listened to that was uh, different because i'm thinking back in sort of middle school like in middle school uh, I was just got into, I think like classic rock, and then I got into uh, rap, hip hop back in the day. So the music that you listen to and what your interests are connect you with certain types of crowds as well. For sure, but because I had diverse tastes, you know. But then there were these, uh, you know, people who really listen to U two, and and they were and they dress a certain way, and and some of these goth that we consider now, I'm like, oh, those kids, you know, they're they're the outcasts kind of thing. So did you have that type of uh, camaraderie as well? I had that also, and it was was a big, there's like a transitional moment as I got older. So uh, I, as a kid, I liked all the glam rock, like heavy metal bands, and that wasn't what was popular at my school. At my school, what was popular was the hip hop and R and B of the time. And so like what I'm talking about was like, you know, guns and roses and Motley Crue. And I like that. And then the, my class liked like MC hammer and like salt and pepper and boys to men and that kind of stuff. Right. And, and when I was a kid, it was just eighties music and it wasn't like as it wasn't as, like segregated or like, you know, uh, I didn't feel any sort of groups when I was younger, like kind of music derived because we didn't, we had no classic rock at our school, you know, like that just wasn't part of it at all. And, uh, it was all this like popular eighties music for a while. Then like the thing I was telling you where it was kind of one side or the other. And I, I, I like both, you know, so I liked the other side too. And I, I didn't want to be a total outcast at school. So I didn't like go around like totally getting way into the glam rock lifestyle. Although I did have a little bit more of that look than, than any of the, the hip hop like look. Uh, but as I was, um, I, I distinctly remember this uh, as I was a teenager going out of grade school so my grade school went all the way to eighth grade. So we did our junior high there also. And 
in eighth grade, I was going from eighth grade to high school. And this was a new school, Notre Dame, new group, maybe like five kids from my class were going there. It was going to be a total new thing. We had this big party for our graduation and all the kids were listening to Cypress Hill. And Cypress Hill's album was basically like 10 songs about weed. <laughs> it's one of my favorites. And, and, and other bad things. <laughs> yeah, I, I had Be Real on my podcast. Uh, I have a story on that. So anybody who wants to listen can go back to the story. But uh, he and I met in 90, 1990, 91, uh, on MTV Spring Break when they were down Daytona Beach. And nobody knew who they were. So, And he remembered. And when they said, we, we kill his brain cells, I mean... Uh, be real remembered me from like an experience we had in 91. So I, I, I definitely don't think that's the case. <laughs> yeah. And like when I was young, then he, he was uh, the hero. Uh, well, he became the hero for pot, you know, like Cypress Hill in general. And then shortly thereafter, Dr. Dre released the chronic album and like me and my friends wanted to smoke weed right from there, you know? And then, uh, now, Be Real is, is like one of the big guys in the cannabis uh, industry. And he's celebrated for a lot of that early stuff he did. For sure. Yeah, definitely a pioneer. So when did you realize you wanted to make movies? Yeah. So uh, that's, a, that's also kind of a weird one because growing up, I always thought I was going to be in the movies or do stuff. I have a bunch of little like weird kind of like synchronicity moments uh throughout my childhood where like um i mean i'll just mention a couple so uh we we've all seen the movies tombstone and and stuff like that right so when i was a kid before any of these movies my dad used to take us to tombstone and we just walked around and he liked to go to all the museums and stuff but one of the times they were doing all these reenactments. And so uh, I, as a kid, I would like full on dress up in costumes and go out. You know, I was, I was kind of that, that kind of kid. So I was fully decked out in cowboy costume and I was little, I was always the littlest kid in my class. So I'm, I was very small and I'm fully decked out in it. And I'm leaning against a barrel watching their demo. And apparently, uh, so I found out about this after the fact and, and much, much after the fact, really. That day I heard that a newspaper guy had taken my picture. Mm. And so later I found out that he paid my dad some money and they put me on the front page of the newspaper and uh, that was pretty young. Then in school, I was always like the star of the school play type thing. But I was not an outgoing person in my normal life. So like this was really odd parallels for me where I would be putting myself in these situations for some reason. And it was like horribly anxiety and stressful and like this is really difficult. But it, something was there. And I made a home movie of my very first trip to Amsterdam in 99 with two VCRs and a, a disc man where I like cut it and I put a bunch of scenes and music and I made a whole movie that's like an hour-ish long back then. And, and then I tried to make stuff before YouTube existed. I thought, okay, I'm going to make a travel series about going there because I was going there so often and I knew all this stuff that nobody knew. So I shot all this stuff and I, I, I was going to try and make like a travel DVD and see and sell it. Mm -hmm. And uh, that really didn't go very far. And uh, YouTube came around and kind of wiped me out. <laughs> and uh, I didn't get back into movie making until much, much later. And it was this really weird transition where I never went to film school or any of those things that would be a normal, traditional way of going into filmmaking. Nothing like that. I shot a bunch of stuff for an event that I was producing at the time. 
and I knew it was something special. And then it was just this long journey of trying to get that made into an actual film where I kind of learned the process and I met the right people. And then eventually was able to start doing what I'm doing now. Got it. Um, I mean, it's, it's never a straight line. Like if you really are passionate about something, you just have to sort of get the rest of the clutter out of the way so you can really connect to what your purpose is. And, you know, sometimes a long zigzagging uh, kind of uh, journey. But what was, you mentioned cannabis. What was your involvement in, uh, in the cannabis space? Oh boy. So, well, first, uh, the way I got into cannabis was kind of the way I described earlier. I saw it through those people and we started mm-hmm. smoking it. Mm-hmm. And for me, it clicked as the thing that I liked. I had tried drinking, didn't like that. Tried smoking cigarettes. I was like, this people do this? Like, I didn't get it at all. And so uh, neither of those things were my thing. But when I smoked cannabis and I first got high, it was a really good experience. And I thought, this is for me. I want to do this more. And it was hard to get. So uh, there was this, you know, this buildup of desire because I wanted it and I couldn't get it. And then I would periodically get it. And it would be so great for this like little bit and then long periods of time of, of wanting. So I, I developed kind of a, a, a a really good relationship with it early on. I didn't like abuse it right away. And there was a bunch of, I, you know, I had a a good kind of indoctrination (laughs) and, uh, and then, um, I sold it as a kid. I I started buying it in bulk because it was hard to get. Right. And then I got better deals and then people want to buy it from me. And so I started selling it and then started eventually growing it. And then eventually I started making hash and I went to Amsterdam and got way into it. And I, there was a moment where I, I was like, do I, do I need to like quit this or am I going to like go way into this? And I chose to go way into it. And I started buying books and I started learning about all kinds of stuff that wasn't really commonly known. And uh, I was that guy to everybody. It was like, weed genius guy. If you want to have a question about pot, talk to me. And so I was that guy for a long time for a lot of people. And then I was on the cutting edge of making um, a hash that is made with solvents. So now it's referred to as dabbing. And back in then it was just hash oil. And I won the first, I worked with some people and we all won the first uh, uh, award for any sort of dabbing tool or anything dabbing related in Amsterdam at the High Times Cannabis Cup. And so then I was like full on. I have from that point, I won another cannabis cup in 2012 for the first domeless dabbing tool. And then uh, I wrote for a magazine prior to that for almost like maybe five years or so and from Canada flew out to Canada, did their events. I flew out. I went to many different places in California because of the magazine. They were introducing me to all the cutting edge people and we were doing articles on them. And so I, I had this position where I like really knew a lot and, and other people getting into it just were not able to do what I did, what I brought to the table. So then I started doing these events. And uh, the events that I did were uh, international hash competitions where we went all over the United States throwing these events. I did one in Amsterdam. I did one in Spain. Like, and then there was like finals where the people that won all the events from all over the, all the different places would come and compete. And we would have a world champion of hash. Now, we're the only ones ever doing that and, and doing it on the scale where all the important people were competing. This wasn't just like small little groups and this was a big deal. And then I threw one of the biggest events with a, another team in cannabis. Uh, it's called Chalice Festival. So that big event, I'm like, so I just have so many accomplishments in cannabis. Uh, it's hard to really remember all of them. And uh, those are like the ones that people generally, oh, I, I created a product called Rig Rags that was like a 
thing for dabbing for a while and everybody had them and like there's just a bunch of stuff people could know me from all kinds of different places yeah i i remember the chalice and i, I was going to ask you uh i knew a guy named frenchy cannoli who was Aha. A, a winner mm-hmm. i think uh of uh some of that hash stuff i, I mean really a mentor in in the hash space i was just telling somebody a little while ago like we have all these concentrates and all this stuff now and i remember back in the day we would get like a hair straightener and put like wax paper on both sides and just squeeze and apply some yep. pressure and there you go so it doesn't you don't need all these multi-million dollar machines to do that i mean it's no no do, but so that's, in, uh, that's what you used to do back in the day 2014 or 2015 we were doing that in spain and it was brand new to all of them and like bubble man was doing it yeah. he was teaching mark emery how mm-hmm. to do it at the event so if anybody that knows cannabis mark emery is like the prince of pot in canada he's big big deal and uh so so i'm watching these two gigantic cannabis celebrities like Oh, look, you can do this thing. And like, like the whole thing. And, and it's super amateur at this point. Now rosin is the big popular thing. But uh, yeah, they were both doing that at, at our event in Spain. It was a really cool moment. And I have a Frenchie story. So I know Frenchie too. Frenchie came to our events uh, in Northern California. I, he might've been to other ones, but I know he was at that. And uh, he reached out to me. Uh, before he passed away about his documentary that's currently out right now. And we got him an offer from Discovery Channel and they did not take it. Mm. And I'm super disappointed that that didn't get a bigger thing while he was still alive. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that. That's exactly what I was going to ask you. So I'm glad you brought that up to see if you interacted with him based on, you know, the documentary. Yeah, it would have been pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. So, he he saw our, our work and he personally reached out to me and he sent me the information from his producers that uh, shot the thing and he spent quite a lot of money on it. I know how much they spent and it's a lot. And uh, they got an offer for not as much as they spent uh, from Discovery Channel and so they didn't take it. And um, I thought the offer was still the best they would ever get. Mm-hmm. So they should take it. But they obviously they didn't feel that way. They thought they would, you know. And I, I understand the well, project they have is a wonderful project. It is, but it, but discovery would have been a really good outlet because yeah. it's an educational outlet, and you want to approach this in an educational way. So, you know. and uh, what I've found is that platforms generally, um, especially platforms like Discovery, they have their own viewers. They have a certain audience that's going to watch this. And once it's done with their, they'd be, they're not going to hold it for ransom. They don't need it. You know, they'll let it go and you can put it on other platforms. Right. So, makes sense. Yeah. so educate me on how do how do you structure a documentary? Like, what do you do? Do you have a script? Do you have a loose script? Do you have an idea? And then you should like, I just don't know anything about it, but I'm sure. a huge fan of documentaries. So I just want to understand sort of how do you structure a documentary? That's a good question because it can be, it's very different from filmmaking, like narrative traditional filmmaking. So uh, being a director for documentaries basically means you're doing the interviews. And uh, I think also probably coming up with the topics to a certain degree and you know, the, the, the question, the line of questioning or the storyline of the, the documentary, if there is one, um, me and personally, I don't have an agenda when I start a project. Usually I have my own personal feelings and those kind of play in a little bit, but as long as I'm showing, um, both was wide of a view of something that could have many angles to be looked at as possible. I like to do that. I want to, kind of represent every perspective that I think is reasonable and, or even unreasonable sometimes. So for some of my topics that I don't know that much about, I definitely make an outline where I've, I've researched the topic. I kind of look for anything I think is interesting. I really 
just like you would do at school. I put it down in a, in, in a sequence of how I think it should come out in the movie. And then I ask those questions in that sequence. Uh, sometimes I'll ask a question and they'll say something that leads me to another question. So I, I allow myself to go down that road, but I have uh, found that it's very good to have that outline to go back to so that you're not, okay, where am I? Because if you don't write it down, sometimes you can forget. Um, and, and also writing down while you're talking to someone can be helpful too, for that same reason. But basically it's like writing an outline for a paper at school. And depending upon how much you want to get into different things like history or aspects of the story, you might elaborate on certain portions of that outline. But that's basically what it is. So in, in regular filmmaking, I, I had a little bit of experience in, in some of that. Uh, there are a lot of budgetary concerns, right? So you basically have to treat it like a business too. You have your idea, you have your outline, but then you have you know somebody that's overlooking the budget. And then, so it, I guess a two-part question I'm, I'm kind of trying to think through. Is there a business part to this, uh, you know, documentary filmmaking? Uh, do once you once you develop and create the story, and you you film it, and you know, is there? Do you want to sell it as an outlet? Is it uh, it's something you want to generate revenue? And do you have that in mind? So you make sure you keep your, uh, you know, you keep your budget low, and then uh, look at those opportunities, sort of as. Are these sellable items? What can I do to sell it and, and, and where? So you're asking, I think, the best per me, either, either me or my partner, I think we're the best. Literally. I, and I, I wasn't confident saying that until recently, but uh, micro-budget filmmaking, especially documentary filmmaking, which is precisely what we uh, do, is very difficult, but we've made... I think 25 projects. So we have an extensive list of uh, experience that other people do not have. So you are very much on the right track. Um, the, what we did would be like this. So when I approach a project, generally I'm not trying to put a bunch of money into the project until I know for sure that that project is going to be worth it uh, when it comes out. And what we've, we've done enough projects that not all projects are going to be worth it. And the ones that we think are going to be worth it usually are not. And so it takes kind of a lot of research and development before you really feel confident about, okay, I'm, I'm going to pay for interviews. I'm going to maybe fly to somewhere or even rent equipment. I, I have a lot of forgiving, um, uh, aspects with this because I own all my own equipment. So I don't have to worry about some of the budgetary issues that, that you might have with uh, larger documentaries, especially bigger budget documentaries that are maybe following someone around for a certain period of time or, or doing something like that. So for us, we do these micro budget projects and we tackle all these different subjects and as we do the projects, we kind of find out this subject seems to be a good subject. These people responded and, and were supportive of each other. This one didn't have that. Oh, this project, the people were like not, you know, so you, you learn all that stuff as you're going along and, and you're doing different things. And but do you, do, you create, do you create like a little teaser uh, first and then sort of shop that around to see if there's any interest or nothing nope. like that. Okay. Nope. We just make the full project. And, uh, and so, so I have a cooking show that I shot theoretically for Netflix. We rented all the right equipment and we are doing what you just said. We shot that project. Uh, it has to be edited into like a pitch. Then they put together what's called a pitch deck. And then, you take that project around and you look for funding from sponsors, from a network that wants it, from anyone who wants to pay to make the full season of the show. And then even if it gets picked up by a network, that's not 100% that they're going to actually air it. 
sometimes they don't air it. And so, uh, especially if it's a, this is also true when it's a funded thing from a sponsor, not picked up by a network, then you, you may have shot a whole show and you still need to get it picked up. So uh, all of that takes time. And my cooking show, here we are two maybe plus years later after I shot it, zero people have got paid on that project. Nobody's picked it up. You know, this is, um, if this is a business where you're supposed to be living off of this, then this is very difficult. Uh, A lot of people in filmmaking, quote unquote, aren't really making their money from filmmaking. They're doing something else. It's the old cliche. You're a a waiter or whatever. Yeah, it's like an actor, right? Until you make your thing. So that's, that's true for a lot of people. Not me. I am a filmmaker. I make money from making films. So we put our films out quickly and we make lots of them. And we put them out in all kinds of different ways. And of course, we want to get the most money we can for our films. But we are working on a, a basically our, our films have to perform. If they don't perform, we don't get paid. And so we're putting them out in that sort of a realm. We're getting the people that put our films out also need them to perform or they don't get paid. So it's, you know, it's a, a, a group effort. Our distributors want our films to do well. We want our films to do well. And the platforms that pick them up want them to do well. Yeah, it's performance based. You downloads and stream, all these other things. They pay you like, a, you know, a percentage of whatever it is and or a dollar or five cents. Yeah. It's, it's sort of like the music uh, business was at some point where you have plays in radio and they pay you like a nickel if you're Aerosmith every single time that they they, uh, they play the song kind of thing. Yeah, and there's two ways kind of to do that. There's like the pay-per-view kind of way where pe- literally your viewer is paying and watching or uh, the way that we like is the more common way now, which is a free platform that puts commercials in or there is a subscription to that platform like Amazon, for example, and they include things for free. And, and so for me, I always tell people, you can watch everything I make for free somewhere. It costs $0 to support me as a filmmaker. I never have to lie to anyone because one person watching my movie does almost nothing. So I'm 100% honest when I talk to people about all this stuff. And ratings and reviews, those go a long way. So every single person that does that is an important person. And I wish that I got, you know, 10% of the, even maybe 1% of the people that watch my movies to go rate and then review them. But, uh, you know, other than that, like, it's, it's a, it, I'm, I'm an open book. So I like to teach people how to do it. What we do isn't easy. And uh, yeah, go out there and try. (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, What you're saying makes sense. And and now you have platforms and and equipment and all this stuff makes it easier these days and also harder. Same thing as music. You know, it's easier and harder. Before you had, there was only these limited outlets. Now you have a lot of different outlets, but you also can be lost in the clutter. What's the deal with Bigfoot? Explain that. <laughs> I'm I so wish curious. I knew. People are obsessed. I know. Like, I, I thought you learned something, man. Come uh-huh. on. Drop yeah, some knowledge so, on me about Bigfoot. So, well, one thing I've learned is doing uh, projects that are associated with that are almost always going to be a home run. So you, certain ones less than others, but like we've put a bunch of money into marketing projects that we thought were good. Uh, we've, we've tried so many things for certain projects and um, the things that work are kind of obvious already. Like what seems to work is uh, people that have big followings sharing those projects and and stuff like that. But Bigfoot works on a different level. It's not like, and also UFOs work this way. They are popular independent of any marketing any sort of sharing from a celebrity or anyone important. uh, We put out a Bigfoot project and just on its own, it just blows up. Uh, We just did a project called A Dogman Tales. And it's not our most well-produced project. Uh, 
you know, we kind of had a, a larger vision for it and, and it didn't get accomplished. And what we ended up putting together was kind of, we settled for it. Mm-hmm. And it's my most popular movie that I've put out in at least a year, wow. you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> But your approach, I think your approach is also, uh, it's from the people, right? So your your perspective is from the people that have this, belief or have this evidence and all that stuff. So capturing them, it's not, I'm going to go out in, in the woods and I'm going to capture Bigfoot. There's so many documentaries that, oh my God, there's a picture. Is it real? You know, that kind of thing. You're talking to the people and I'm fascinated by that. I'm fascinated by how people perceive, like you and I can both look at the same thing and you'll be like, it's that. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm looking at it. It's not. I see that. And that is fascinating. So is there like from that standpoint of uh, we'll we'll start with Bigfoot and UFO because it's so, UFO is sort of the same kind of question. Is there compelling evidence that you were able to gather on Bigfoot and UFOs based on that those people's <laughs> perceptions? So so I'll, I'll kind of spin this one around on you, and um, the so what you just said about where you watch something and then you like I, if two people watch it they have a different perspective. Everyone should go watch my EVP documentary if you want to have that experience because the ghost people and that thing, oh boy, (laughs) (laughs) you need to see what that is like. But for me, um, I find the most believable out of all the things that I'm doing are these the Bigfoot and the UFO subject matter. And so Bigfoot, I feel like definitely did exist in history. There is some sort of a creature, whether it's Gigantopithecus or if there is something else that we just don't know about yet or whatever. There's so many uh, Native American stories about this and stories from history that go back before technology and before the hoaxing and all that, you know. So it seems to be based on a real thing historically. And these stories are also not geographically limited to one specific area. They are found all over the world. And there's, there are traits that are specific to these certain areas. So you have all the sightings in some areas being very similar descriptions, which I find are interesting. And so to me, it wouldn't surprise me if someday one of these stories ends up being a primate that is undiscovered. And, and what I learned about undiscovered animals and, and uh, life and, and things every year is that there's way more than I ever thought. And sometimes they're big, like pretty big. So the, the, the possibility of this being real is, is there. And I'm, what about, what, what, don't you think there would be and I'm just playing devil's advocate, so I'm not even giving my opinion. And I've listened to Joe Rogan talk about this stuff at nauseum too. But wouldn't there be fossilized remains? Oh, sure. Was- yeah, the, the fossilized remains is reasonable. I think a bigger point would be now that we have technology like drones and there's not, there's not a lot of great footage There's not a lot of great evidence. So this is going the direction of these things don't exist anymore and that everything is a hoax. And I'm hoping that we get some really good proof every now and then. The best proof that they have is like some sort of fur or or something that they take and is DNA analyzed and it's un... They, they don't know what it is. It's, well, this is from an animal that hasn't been sequenced. And, you know, take that for what it's worth. If you know anything about DNA sequencing, that doesn't mean that it's Bigfoot. It just means it's an animal that hasn't been sequenced. And sometimes they sequence them over and over and eventually they're like, oh, this is a bear. And that's usually, they never had it to where it was like, this is a Bigfoot because Bigfoot hasn't been sequenced either. So that's the best you get. Um, they always go back to the Patterson footage and you can kind of look at that as like great evidence or not great evidence. And I've gone back and forth to where like, if you look at it with the thought that this is a person in a suit, then you kind of see, yeah, obviously this is a person in a suit and a kind of 
crappy suit. But then if you're looking at it, like, like I've looked at a lot of animals and people in nature and they're not the perfect specimen of modern health. You know, they're kind of sloppy. And this could be a real animal too, if you look at it. I mean, the uh, one of the people I interviewed had talked to uh, Gim- Gimlin, I think is Gilman. I forget the guy's name, but uh, he he doesn't seem to be in on it at all. So if this was a hoax, it was probably a hoax by the Patterson guy. And um, you know, a bunch of people have claimed to be in the suit. They can't all have been in the suit. So that also leads towards like you know some there's lying going on here. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, that one has the least amount of evidence. I feel like UFOs are um, on the other side of this. Yeah, case. I was going to ask you about that because <laughs> now they declassified all this uh, information. So, okay, so give me your based on based on all the information that you have because you're filtered of that information. Yeah, mm-hmm. and you, I'm doing feel- a UFO documentary currently. Okay. So, so uh, yeah, right now it's really an interesting place because we've kind of floundered on this stuff where uh, when I did my last documentary, uh, I want to believe, oh, and, and uh, you called my other documentary Smoking Weed with Bigfoot. It is called Don't Call Me Bigfoot for anybody who wants to see it. But my website is The Sky Island. And so you go to my website, you get all my movies or put my name into IMDb. Uh, the, the UFO movie, I want to believe when I shot that a few years ago, uh, the people kind of confessed to me, well, the people that are reasonable confessed to me, they thought it was military. So I was very disappointed to hear that at the time. Um, now there's, there's enough evidence that, um, so we have, we have one of two possibilities. Okay. So it could still be military, but if it is military, the military has found a way to defy the laws of physics and new science has been written to make what is possible possible. Because what we are seeing, there's no scientific explanation on the books right now that these things should be able to do the things that they're doing. And um, I think we're we have enough evidence that we are not misunderstanding. This isn't a like reading some sort of digital calculator wrong or something like this is not a, a misunderstanding of the evidence that this is evidence that cannot be explained. So let, let me once again, play devil's advocate on this. Um, from my understanding, even like Star Trek, right? So a lot of the things that were done in, in Star Trek and, and the shows came from classified information the military was experimenting with. So could there be some information that's classified on different, uh, you know, different ways that they have created flying vehicles and all this stuff? Because we have exoskeletons. We have yeah. ways to be able to communicate, you know, through our mind and body. There was a, I, re- I remember there was a, the last World Cup that was in uh, in Brazil, there was a guy with a was sort of an exoskeleton that actually controlled kicked out the first ball. It's just amazing technology, and with yeah. Neuralink and all this stuff. I mean, we're probably we're probably ten years a- ahead of where we think we are without us knowing that information exists. So you were saying it could be military, but there's no physical evidence right, or physics. Right. But maybe they've already defied the those laws. Right. You're absolutely right. The fun answer is the aliens. Right. And that's, of course. that's, that's <laughs> the fun one. And we always like to say, oh, we can't like we dumb people that don't understand how these things work or weren't part of the discovery process of how we got to the end technology. Well, obviously, this technology is so foreign to us that it had to have been given to us by some sort of higher supreme being that's more knowledgeable be it some sort of an angel god type thing be it aliens be it whatever right and so that's the fun answer and i almost never believe those answers (laughs) but i want to believe those answers and i can't wait until they roll out the alien and they're like here we go because that's (laughs) what i look at that i just think it's so it's so 
arrogant and uh-huh. naive of us to believe we're the only life uh, form in the universe and oh. all these other universes. Like, yeah. there, there has to be some. Now, I don't know if they're here. I don't know if those things are aliens. Yeah, I have no yeah. idea. But and we're not the kind of, best at anything, almost. You know, humans no. aren't the best at giving birth. Not the best at staying alive. Not the best at living long lives. We're not the best at almost anything. Uh, we are the best at figuring out tools, and so we've decided that clearly we're made by God or whatever, and you know that nothing can be as smart as us, and that uh, any sort of aliens—that's just nonsense. There is also that that the possibility that something could be millions of years ahead of us, and I think that's entirely reasonable. reasonable. Whether it's coming here or not, hmm, that's hard to do. That's not out of the question either that they've created some sort of a vessel that's a living vessel that they can survive in for long periods. And uh, kind of like you said, originally when we first kind of were getting into all these ships, the moves they were doing and stuff, the, the saying would be, you know, human could live inside of, of one of those ships because our bodies are weak. We've got these weak bodies. And now we all know about drones. And so people are like, oh, they're just drones. And so like, we are kind of slowly seeing the technology. And, and what I will say about this is like, science has not created a mainstream form of new propulsion or technology for uh, like a, a gas powered engine that is something superior to this in a long time. I'm very suspicious if this is actually the case or if there is something that we have discovered that is superior to these things that just hasn't been rolled out to us yet. Hey, we have, uh, you know, we have crazy electric uh, vehicles and all kinds uh-huh. of different electric. So, yeah, the electric uh, vehicles right now, they're starting to be better, right? People are basically on that page where they're like, the Tesla car is now better than a regular car. But up until the Tesla car, pretty sure nobody thought that. And everyone was on the page of, yep, we're still happy with our gas-powered everything. And, you know, everything else works basically the same way. Where's the technology? I know they've been working on it. 50 years, 60 years, no advances. I'm a little suspicious of that. So I I kind of, I'm with you that this, this stuff is probably, probably still military, but the consensus right now amongst everybody in this in the field is that now we're back on that these are aliens. The- I, I say we go with uh, <laughs> Bigfoot. Bigfoot is in the alien ship, and that's what we're getting. And he lands. Oh, I heard and that. We see both. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> one of my favorite stories when people ask me about Bigfoot. Is uh, people think Bigfoot is uh, like beaming up, essentially dematerializing, and then beaming exactly. up to spaceships. And I've heard the explanation for that is that the Bigfoot is an exo- exoskeleton for the aliens for while they're down here on Earth in this harsh that. reality. And they have these <laughs> soft bodies. So they beam their like consciousness into these like Bigfoot creatures that can survive down here. And yeah, I man, I hope that one's true. <laughs> I can't wait. So you have, you have Bigfoot, you have UFOs, and you have like MMA and fighting. And I, I read oh, yeah. you're a wrestling guy too, like uh, uh, like me. I, I'm an old school wrestling guy. And I, I was very, very early on into MMA with like uh, the Tank Abbott days and all that other yes, stuff. And it was, yes. when it was crazy. Uh, is there a certain, a certain thread and a theme that goes through all these uh uh, documentaries instead of interest of yours like you have to have a personal interest or is it like i'll do due diligence and see this is something that's of interest to other people i kind of have an interest in this and i'll merge the two together you nailed it it's both those things <laughs> so uh well i'll also say we originally started from the standpoint of exploring financially what we could afford to do and what would likely be successful financially. So my partner brought to me a bunch. Uh, we get So when we use a distributor, right? When we get our monthly reports from the distributor, everybody's movies are on there. So we get to see how everybody's movies are doing and we know who's making money and who's not. And so we 
he brought me this sheet and we're looking at it and we're like, look, this is what works. This is what doesn't work. And he's showing me that kind of, um, odd sports or like, you know, like crazy extreme sports. Those seem to do well for documentaries and things that are weird, like Bigfoot and UFOs. And that's why we tried that. And I genuinely have an interest in that. So it really went well. Um, martial arts was my version of extreme sports. I'm like, I'm interested in that. You want to try that? We tried it. It didn't do so well, but, uh, uh, wrestling has done a little bit better. And I'm also interested in that. And I thought, man, you see the big following that wrestling has and, and all that, but, but independent wrestling is, is not quite the same animal that WWE is. And it's a real odd thing for, for, um, for a community that, it's just almost entirely monopolized by one company. Not so much now with AEW, who I really, really like. But, uh, you know, for a long time, basically a monopoly, WWE runs the show and then everybody else is like fighting over the scraps. And that's what our movie kind of showed too, is that we focused on independent. It didn't do that well. I did a documentary about a zoo. Uh, we thought, oh, the zoo with the government and like the mainstream backing of that, but that didn't seem to take off. The big, the big bear. Uh, yeah, zoo yeah, we did it. It's called the Alpine Zoo in New, right, right. and uh, it's about one of two alpine zoos in all of the United States. So it, it's. I think it's super sense. cool, man. It, it mm-hmm. it's super cool because not only is it the elevation, but it's also sort of this rescue, right? It's like they, they yeah. rescue animals. And I mean, such a great story. Yeah. For, for me, people... it's always heartbreaking because that's right. the one I want to go do half a million views on YouTube. Not my, U- I mean, I love the UFO <laughs> ones doing that, but like, you know, can, can we get some love for the things that are important in the world? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's a great point. That's why I was asking the question because, because like, you know, Michael Pollan did this documentary, uh, um, uh, how, how to change your mind yep. uh, uh-huh. for, of all the different drugs. I think it's fantastic. I think he did a great job. And all of a sudden I have all these people that are reaching out that are like curious about microdosing. Now there were, uh-huh. Oh, I'm never pot. I'm not going to stay away from pot, I'll pop pills all day long or whatever it is. But now they want to microdose. And I think that because Michael Pollan is such an authority in this because he wrote about this and he's like, I was a skeptic, but I, and he tried it all himself. It's opening up avenues for people that are saying, okay, uh, I like this myself, but I'm also going to put this out there and the public is going to connect to this. Maybe you can have uh, other people that are, uh, that are making it going to make other documentaries on top of that. Even I think you did one or, or you talked about somewhere or yeah, Go ahead. Talk about it. So, uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of what you are saying, and I absolutely agree with what you're saying. And and I also know why uh, people are reaching out to you is because that got on Netflix. And Netflix is the hype, popular streaming platform. If you get on Netflix and you get popular on Netflix, you are a success. And that that is a big deal right now. So I'm very happy that, that his film is, is having the success that it is having. But prior to his film coming out, I put out two films. Um, they are on Fox's streaming platform, and they just never really hit the same way. And I tried to put a little into uh, promoting them, but uh, I think equally as valuable. And, and some of the stuff we talk about in ours uh, is information that it is not in his. And especially for business people, they should watch my movie and see some of this stuff because there's big business opportunities that people uh, didn't know existed um, for, for this stuff. But uh, my films are called Have a Nice Trip, Psychedelics in Medicine, and then Have a Nice Trip, uh, Macrodosing and Microdosing. And basically what they are is just like the Bigfoot one, we're exploring these topics from a very open-minded perspective and for the average person that is curious about this subject, let's talk about all this stuff that's in the news. Let's talk about the value of it, what's real, what's not so real, and um, just perspectives on this and, and kind of a, a starting point for anybody who wants to explore these things. I think you did, or you talked about somewhere, a uh, film you did on, on mindfulness. Yep. 
right? I've so done two I'll, of those too. Two of those, right? Mm-hmm. So I wanted to ask you, do you have your own mindfulness practice that, that you uh, That I do myself? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, yes, I do. Um, mine is not, well, so I wrote down a series of steps that when anybody comes to me for help, I send them these, it's like eight steps of things the average person could work on for themselves that will make you a happier person, right? And so that, that would be my suggestion to people if they wanted like something, uh, like if, for me to give them steps or my, my practice or whatever. My mindfulness practice in general is just try, trying to second guess everything. So like when I like something, why do I like this? Um, and a lot of times if I'm feeling some, so bad feelings, you really, really got to delve into this. If you like see something and you're like jealous or, or like, Oh, I don't, you really got to take a step back, give yourself time to really think about why you feel the feelings that you're feeling. And if you don't really feel that way, like that, it's just a hijacking of, of your emotions and that you got triggered for some reason but that if you think about it, you, you are going to have a better way of going about handling whatever situation it is or a better perspective on that thing. And uh, that, for me, is the most valuable thing for mindfulness. I, I constantly will see something and get a little upset or be like, oh, like jealous of something. And then I kind of think, wait a minute, what am I doing here? And then take it a little further. And then I feel so much better. And it, it's even helped me to not say things or do things that I would regret later on where I'm like, oh man, I, I was a dick or that yeah. was like judgmental. And I don't even feel that way. And like, yeah. you know, it, it, we can get hijacked super easy these days. You said you're a Joe Rogan fan, right? So uh, did you watch his TV show? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So did you ever see the thing where he had a... Um, uh, God, what are they called? A mentalist. He had a mentalist on, and the mentalist showed him how he did one of the tricks. Do you remember that? Yeah, I think okay. so, yeah. So, so the mentalist asked him to show him a shape or to name a shape, and that he was going to name the shape that him and his friend were going to name, right? And, and he does this little thing, and he, then he writes it down on a piece of paper. They both say triangle. He shows them that he wrote down triangle. And then he shows them how he did it. And it's through these hand gestures that he did right while he was asking them the question. He's like, I was asking you this question, but did you notice that I was doing this? And he's basically making the shape of a triangle with his hands. And then both of them said triangle, right? So I ask you, in our lives, all day long, everywhere we look, how many people are doing triangle? You know, how many businesses are doing some form of this triangle brainwashing stuff? And we're all just idiots walking around saying triangle all the yep. time. We're like, duh. We don't yeah. even like these things that we're being told that we like. And all that we're just being manipulated by brainwashing all the time. And we have to constantly be using this mindfulness stuff to, to be like, wait a minute, did that guy just shape triangle? And I, now I'm saying triangle because that, how about, how about circle? How about something yeah. else? Parallelogram. Yeah, we're being programmed. Yeah, now you're absolutely you know, right. like, always, always being programmed. Joe Rogan's in the UFC, Octagon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's a good one. You know? I, so I have uh, a few questions I ask all my uh, guests, so I uh, hope you're ready for them. Yeah, yeah, please hit me. All right. So please describe your first experience with cannabis. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> I sm- So we, we, we decided we were going to get cannabis and watch the movie Friday. We literally bought a leaf. Somebody sold us a pot leaf. We cut this pot leaf up thinking that we were going to get hot from smoking this pot leaf. And we cut it, we smoked it in a little skull pipe that somebody gave us behind a tennis court in North Hollywood, across from the the UA theater. Now it's no longer there. Uh, And uh, 
we went in and watched the movie Friday and we had a great time. We didn't know if we were high or not and, and <laughs> thought it was the best. Later, I smoked weed. I, I bought weed from a kid from my grade school and uh, I smoked it uh, outside. And then I came inside and I talked to my girlfriend on the phone. And that was the first time I really got high. And I was watching The Simpsons. And I lo- it was so funny. And she was like, are you high? And I'm like, yep. Oh. <laughs> um, I'm a big music guy. Uh, do you remember what the f- first concert you ever attended was? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the first concert I ever attended was Rancid. Yeah, yeah. I, I went to a, like a college with a friend of mine who was like really into... Like this is the first real concert. We went to concerts at like... Uh, um, like coffee houses and, and little venues, but I don't consider those concerts. Like the real concert was Rancid, and we went to see them at like a school that had they had hired them, and I think it was the Voodoo Glow Skulls, or it was some other like really cool ska band was supposed to play before them, but the something happened to where the, one of the musicians was sick or wasn't able to play. And so we went in and the offspring was opening for Rancid and they were super popular at the time. So it was like, it was really cool show. Is there anything you're listening to these days uh, that you want to share? That's cool. Anything I'm listening to these days. That's cool. Hmm. Well, I've listened to our local radio station up in Big Bear. You can actually get it on a thing called radio.net. And they play a lot of really obscure music from the 60s. And it's just a super diverse uh, bunch of music. And one of the DJs is like a really, really official music guy. He really knows music. So I'm constantly hearing really cool stuff on there. And then I also get all the local news from our small town where I live. So I love that radio station. It's called KBHR. Cool. And uh, that's on radio.net. I also really, really, really enjoyed the 60s station on Sirius. Uh, My dad listens to that. And man, oh man, is that a good station. Yeah, great music. Um, What has cannabis meant in your life? Cannabis Cannabis for me basically changed my life. before finding cannabis, I was an outcast of society. No one liked me. Well, I mean, my small group of friends liked me, but I was not having the type of life that I wanted. I was watching all these popular kids and seeing all the cool stuff. And I was interested in that. And when I got into cannabis, it opened the door. Like cool people would talk to me then. They you know, it was almost like I was a narc before where they were like not opening the door to me. I wasn't cool. I wasn't like, you know, acceptable in all these other places. And as I started to smoke cannabis, I learned how to be cool. And I learned kind of the things that I was doing myself that were, you know, not people don't enjoy feeling bad, you know, and, you know, there's just all kinds of personality things you can learn about yourself that might be hurting your ability to make friends and all that kind of stuff. And and I learned a lot about that from cannabis and I learned a lot about being open-minded from cannabis. Love that, man. Um, All right. Bonus question. You qualify. Uh, Please describe what your room looked like growing up. My room growing up, that's a great question. So my room growing up transitioned quite a bit. I would constantly move my furniture around so that I had a different like layout to my room. I had posters of stuff like Motley Crue, Michael Jordan. I loved the actress Christina Applegate in Married with Children. She was like my, my pretend girlfriend. And so I had posters of her. I had um, all my trophies from all my soccer days and playing baseball and little league sports and stuff like that. Uh, I was religious back then. So I had a little like shrine to Jesus and stuff. Um, I had a, a, a incense burner. 
And as I got older, um, that became kind of like my little pot area. And then I eventually got rid of my bed and I put in couches and I had a folding couch bed in my room in my parents' house because I would bring over friends and we'd hang out in my room. Oh, and I had a huge stereo. Very cool. Yeah, I like the Jesus with pot. uh, (laughs) That's pretty cool. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Jeremy, thank you so much for being on. Where can people, you mentioned about, mentioned again, where can people find you, uh, social, your movies, get in touch with you, uh, let everybody know. Yep, my pleasure. The best thing is to just type my name into your Google search engine. My IMDB page will come up. You can find all my movies there. Next best would be my website. It's called theskyisland.com. You can get links to all my social media pages, my email, how to contact me, everything you want. All my podcast appearances are are linked there. There's uh, everything that you want to get on me. All my awards for filmmaking, everything is there on my website. And then even if you just like have an Amazon Fire Stick or somewhere where you stream movies like a Roku, you type my name in there. And then my I have a page that'll come up on Amazon. I have a page on Roku and, and they make that. So that's like one of the coolest things about a film, being a filmmaker. So I have all that stuff uh, that they are promoting for me. Awesome, brother. Thank you so much. So good, man. I, I learned so much uh, and I'm going to go and revisit some of your movies again and learn about uh, the alien Bigfoot coming from the UFO. So <laughs> I appreciate it. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. All right. Take Thank care. you very much. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.